0: I think to many historians, including many Northern Ireland scholars such as Patrick uh, Buckland, the defining feature of sovereign unionism was essentially uh, that it was not Ulster unionism. The divergence between the two perspectives is certainly emphasised. By contrast, the theme in my paper today might be said to reflect the extent to which sovereign unionists provided political leadership for unionists across Ireland by virtue of their greater political experience or one might say, a broader political vision. Now I can cite an argument of Buckland in defence of this view. He argued that the plain truth about Ulster Unionism was that it had no constructive political philosophy. There was also a darf of political talent in a movement which had a single, narrow, and essentially parochial aim. Now, Alvin Jackson's explanation of this trend may be the most accurate. Ever since the rise of James Craig, Austria unionism was a highly disciplined political machine that was essentially hyper-prepared for the election hustings, but it wasn't really engaged with the Empire. Now, the First World War certainly had the capacity to change the situ- situation. Uh, the British Cabinet appointed James Craig and Edward Carson to positions of treasurer and First Lord of the Admiralty, and this was effectively an invitation to them to engage directly with the uh, administration of the empire. However, even if both men benefit from this experience to some extent, in Jackson's view, neither man had a genuine enthusiasm uh, for imperial politics, and indeed they soon resigned from these positions. So essentially, the the academic detachment of the imperial administrator, or you could even say foreign policy strategist, was alien to their mindset or simply not their forte. I would say that's the essential reason for the growing prevalence of this man, William St. John Broderick, who was better known as Viscount Middleton, which is a period, period obviously, that was named after his family's ownership of land in East Cork. Now, the comparative lack of Irish Unionist engagement with the Empire may not have been the uh, explanation why Um, Middleton replaced Sir Sir Edward Carson as the leader of the Irish Unionist Alliance in 1910 but certainly was the reason why he became for all intents and purposes the leader of sovereign unionism after the 1916 rising not least because he had a very lengthy career in imperial service indeed I would argue that focusing on the empire is essential to understanding not only the context but also the methods adopted in that sovereign unionist, unionist political strategy which Middleton would lead. Now, to many an Irish historian today, loyalism is essentially a culture to be explored or defined as it applied to individuals or localities. However, to Middleton's uh, contemporaries, loyalism had only one unambiguous meaning, and that was a precise faith in the capacity of imperial administrators to find the most pragmatic solutions to literally any political problem. Middleton's strategy, therefore, was essentially to rely on the Channel's diplomacy. Hence the title of my paper today, Outmanoeuvring the doll. The Irish Revolution that began in 1919 was a unilateral attempt to set up an independent Irish government, but for Middleton there could be only one response to this development, and that was to keep one step ahead of the crowd to arranging the most practical, ultimate solution, in an attempt to prove the old loyalist dictum that British statesmanship is a synonym for ordered progress. Now, in in attempting this, Middleton had much experience in many contexts to draw upon. In addition to over 10 years' senior service in the British War Office and Foreign Affairs Ministries, he had been a very enthusiastic uh, imperial administrator during the war, and so now there was literally no area of imperial administration that was alien to him. Now, his first real initiative was the Irish Convention at Trinity College Dublin, which ran during 1917 and to spring of 1918. Because this event failed to redirect the course of Irish party politics, many historians have essentially deemed it to be an an irrelevance. But I would argue that this is essentially to miss the point, because the exercise of the Irish Convention served, served to lay down a sovereign unionist political strategy that continued to be pursued with some notable successes for another five years. Its principal tenant was to gain consent for the idea that Southern unionists were, contrary to popular belief, not a privileged caste but an endangered minority. And by the end of 1917, Middleton had secured, uh, succeeded in securing John Webman's consent for the idea that if an Irish parliament was ever set up, the Irish party should actually serve under Sir Edward Carson in a coalition ministry. More significantly, Middleton won Irish party consent for the idea that unions from all parts of Ireland, including the North, must be given a right of veto over any legislation of a future Irish parliament, again supposedly to safeguard an endangered minority. Now these ideas may not have been very popular in Ireland, but that matters comparatively little to Middleton's success in getting them enshrined in subsequent Irish political debate. Because the Irish Party feared losing its support base, some historians have typified the Irish Convention as a mere exercise to supposedly stem the rise of Sinn Féin, but I would suggest that a far greater consequence was the Unionist use of the Irish Convention to create and sustain social networks, both in academia and the professional classes generally, to gather useful allies. This included men like Stephen Gwynne, who was a significant figure in the Irish Party's ranks, now focusing on a British military career, And maybe most significantly of all, Sir James O'Connor, who was the highest ranking Irish party sympathiser within the legal profession. He was about to become the Attorney General. And so these traditional supporters of, of Redmond now were looking to Middleton for direction. One class, however, that Middleton couldn't sway was essentially the Roman Catholic hierarchy. And the reason for this can be found in Middleton's proposal at the Irish Convention for an Irish upper house he actually envisioned that the Irish Catholic bishops should uh, be appointed to an Irish upper house in essentially the same way as Church of Ireland bishops are appointed to the British House of Lords. Now this, of course, was contrary to Catholic practice in no matter what state, and uh, Middleton and his allies certainly understood this, but they saw in this Catholic position only a perverse rejection of the British statesman's faith in pure political pragmatism. Now, that idea of, uh, was not actually dropped thereafter, It remained an element of Irish political debate and a fascinating uh, during the revolutionary year anyway, and a fascinating example of that is that W.T. Cosgrave actually attempted to revive the same idea in 1921 as a means to possible settlement of the peace negotiations that were going on at that time. So again, Middleton's ideas could spread. Now his next move was to champion the idea Uh, in opposition to the Sinn Féin idea of complete Irish independence, that Unionist leadership was the best solution to the partition question, and particularly to ensure it could be avoided. And to this end, as you probably know, on the same day as the Dáil was first set up, 21st of January 1919, Middleton formed the Anti-Partition League uh, as a breakaway group from the Irish Unionist Alliance, which was the traditional Southern Unionist uh, leadership body. Uh, The effectiveness of this move may not have been immediately apparent, but again, in time, it won influential allies, including Horace Plunkett, Henry Harrison, and quite a few members of the National University of Ireland. Uh, I I think that to understand how that occurred, one needs to consider the impact of the propaganda war that raged in Ireland at this time on the question of policing, and in particular, the question of who were the true keepers of the peace in Ireland. Uh, in many respects, this propaganda was a real crux in deciding popular opinion uh, about the revolution in general, and I would say it had two sides, each which were essentially of equal significance. One was purely political, and the other was more administrative or more specifically financial. First, on the political side of things, a major concern for Middleton was the existence uh, from December 8, 1918 until September 1919 of an American government commission to hear reports from Irish nationalists regarding British rule and particularly British misrule. Now Middleton had been an advocate of a coercive policy within Ireland since 1916 and therefore he was irritated greatly by the fact that the American government took this uh, initiative. Privately he accused the American government of gross political ignorance and bad faith for allowing what he called intolerable and gross libels. From British statementship to be made in public. To Middleton's loyalist mindset, any claim that the British government did not at all times have a scrupulously correct political attitude was inherently an illogical or even a false mental attitude to have that had to be countered and ultimately silenced. The way to do this, of course, if you have to outmaneuver opponents, is through diplomacy. Reflecting this, Middleton resisted, and he was tempted, to arrest American uh, representatives that came to Ireland at this time investigating the situation. And instead, he tried, through his friendship uh, with Arthur Balfour, to directly lobby the American government via the British Foreign Office. Now, uh, Balfour, oops, hang on, there we go. Sorry, I've got the slides in the wrong order. Very professional, sorry. Uh, Balfour, as many of you no doubt know, was a British Foreign Secretary during the war and was a major figure in getting an increasing level of American and British cooperation during the war. So he was a significant figure in the Foreign Office circles at this time, but I think more significantly for my purposes today, when I'm focusing on the strategy adopted by the Earl of Middleton, is that he was a close personal friend of Middleton for decades. When when Balfour was Chief Secretary of Ireland in the 1880s, Middleton was the Under Secretary uh, for War, or the Financial Secretary, rather, of the War Office. So there was a direct, they, were, they grew together as uh, their imperial political outlook, and they understood each other very well indeed. Now, the value of this, what I would call, friend in high places, being Balfour, would soon become clear for a Middleton strategy. But first, let us look briefly at the Sinn Féin side of the equation, and in particular, the nature of the Sinn Féin administration that was being setting up at this time. Although it also had an international dimension, the Sinn Féin policy implemented by Dahl-Ehring was essentially a bottoms-up political strategy based on consolidating the authority of a national parliamentary assembly through a systematic takeover of local government. Contrary to what many historians might assume, this was done through elections, not through brute force. Legally, the key figure involved was Kevin O'Sheill, who also acted on behalf of the Dahl's National Land Bank. Uh, but the legitimacy of the Sinn Féin administration was intentionally made dependent on the holding of local government elections, which were due to play, take place nationwide in January 1920. Now, as a counter to this, Dublin Castle suppressed the Dahl decreed that the county council elections must be postponed to the summer of 1920 and also imposed martial law in Dublin. Now the crux of the whole policing controversy, I would suggest, arose after the county council elections that June. Uh, Sinn Féin won these elections decisively and responded by setting up its own courts and oath-bound police. Oath-bound in the sense of being sworn to uphold the authority of Dal Éireann in the same sense as that, the TDs and indeed members of the Irish Volunteers had been requested to do, taken off, and now the Irish Volunteers were basically requested to act as policemen. Now witnessing this, William Wiley, who was, uh, you could say, a prominent figure in Southern Unionist circles, but he was essentially a legal man. He was like the legal, leading legal advisor to the Land Commission. When he witnessed this, he judged very quickly, oh dear, Sinn Féin has actually been able to set up a government, they've proved they're able to govern, and he reported this to London quite anxiously. Now, the interesting thing about this was Balfour was the man to respond, and his response was, that young man, Wiley, uh, has obviously lost his head, you know, he can't <laughs> deal with the pressure or whatever, and uh, in particular, Balfour judged that uh, Wiley had failed to realise how London had retained its complete mastery of the situation. Now, how, how so? How do they believe that? But first, with Middleton's encouragement, Balfour had already used his position as a British representative in the League of Nations in Geneva uh, to ensure that no foreign policy, or foreign power, excuse me, would now listen to Sinn Féin's complaints against British rule. So in this way, uh, all international channels were effectively closed off to Sinn Féin. Second, anticipating Sinn Féin's success in the local government elections, Middleton had already responded by getting his ally Andrew Jameson it was the chairman of the Irish Bank Standing Committee, to decree before the local elections could actually be held that no loan agreements should be open to the Sinn Féiners once they assumed control of the Irish local authorities. And it might also be noticed on the, noted on the partition question, it was also decreed that henceforth all Irish banks should do all their major business through Belfast. It certainly helped, uh, that decision was taken in Dublin, but it certainly helped the cause of partition warden. James Craig, for instance, could do in Belfast City Council. Anyway, that's beside the point. What I want to emphasise here is the strategy that was adopted. And I think it's a pretty clear strategy. In depriving Sinn Féin of funding, it was deemed inevitable that Sinn Féin would prove incapable of governing. But that was not all. It was also deemed important to counter Sinn Féin's claim that Dublin Castle and not Irish nationalists were the true enemies of the peace in Ireland. So it's back to the question of policing. And here we come, I think, to perhaps the most remarkable feature of the, what has been described as a war of independence in Ireland, is that uh, from the moment that Sinn Féin uh, took over local government in the summer of 1920, right up until the late spring of 1921, a series of outrages took place in Ireland, quite a lot of them really, but who precisely was responsible for this was far from certain. Now, as research by Brian Hughes and many others has high, have highlighted, most Irish people were complete innocent bystanders in this controversy. But a big problem for Sinn Féin, and this is really nearly a key point to understand the revolution in general, big problem for Sinn Féin was an onus of responsibility now resting on their shoulders to prove that they were, what they claimed to be, guarantors of the peace, rather than what the official loyalist line was, is that Sinn Féin was an instrument of pure lawlessness. That was the essential debate going on in the revolutionary period, and the, the, the question of financial resources and administration was largely key. Who was going to win this debate? But anyway, that's anticipating things a bit. I would say that that debate on policing obviously was like a primarily a moral debate. You know, who who's got the moral credibility on their side? And I think that's essentially why. After the summer of 1920, the British government focused really on the question of um, relying on church intermediaries to try and bring about peace negotiations in Ireland without formally recognising either the Dáil or the Sinn Féin administration. And of course, in the supposed manifestation of goodwill, the British government also appointed a son of the Duke of York as the first Catholic viceroy in Ireland uh, for centuries. This was Lord Edmund Talbot who was given the title of uh, the first Viscount and He became Catholic Viceroy for all Ireland in February 1921. Now, the fact that Balfour had already persuaded the International Red Cross uh, from Geneva to ignore the Irish situation meant that Middleton did not attribute much significance to Sinn Féin's initiative at this time, which was to form an Irish White Cross organisation. And he was also rather dismissive of Fitz Allen's abilities. Therefore, he didn't place much emphasis on the idea that Unionists should try and rely on what were effectively British Catholic channels. Instead, he began focusing on boosting, in effect, sovereign Unionists' public profile uh, as the supposed keepers of the peace while attempting to negotiate a peace not through church channels but through business channels. And his allies in this move included... Andrew, J- or Andrew Jameson who I mentioned earlier but also Lord Ivy, who was the head of Guinness breweries and he also secured the indi- support of an individual to act as essentially a purely moral spokesman and this was uh, John Henry Bernard who was a Protestant Archbishop of Dublin now with Middleton's encouragement Bernard who was essentially a scholar he didn't, didn't like to get involved I think in controversies too much but at with Middleton's encouragement he went on, to London on a lecture tour and gave a sermon in Westminster Abbey in which he argued that the Sovereign Unionists had always been the true champions of the peace, not these so-called Irish Nationalists or Republicans. And um, therefore, if Sovereign Unionists entered into the peace negotiations, it would be they and not the Irish Nationalists that would be, and this is the phrase he used, taking their lives into their own hands as well as their reputations, which are worth more to them than life itself. So, in this way, one might say the idea of our, uh, Southern Irish Unionists being an endangered minority uh, was revived at this time, certainly in England. Um, but in the general scheme of things, I think that was not so important. Uh, it was uh, the businessmen rather than the churchmen and uh, in particular a businessman 's conciliation committee that James, uh, Andrew Jameson set up, uh, which was the key figure in the peace negotiations at the time. They dealt dec- directly with de Valera uh, from March 1921 onwards, and they effectively organized the truce, uh, as it was so called in Gen- July 1921, when formal Anglo-Irish negotiations were opened. Now, I would say that the atmosphere surrounding these negotiations and their, uh, their launch was really as significant as their terms. De Valera had invited the sovereign Unionist leaders to a conference at the Mansion House, and on their arrival, they were met with enthusiastic cheering crowds, which is an advisor to Lloyd George noted at the time uh, is, I quote, a big contrast to seeing their auxiliaries and lorries moving about the city of Dublin with their rifles always ready and figures perpetually on the trigger. That was the atmosphere previously. Now, since, aside from a sense of public relief that peace had been uh, seemingly being obtained, Middleton himself recalled that rather than people cheering his rifle, people were on their knees praying, you know, hoping there would be no more violence. Uh, aside from that public relief that peace was seemingly coming, this cheering, uh, these cheering crowds seemingly reflected a belief that it was the sovereign Unionists who had been brought to the negotiating table by Sinn Féin rather than the reverse. But as Middleton noted, and this was certainly his belief, the Unionists had come to De Valera's conference with a definite policy which they had already fully pressed upon the British government. In other words... The Unionists had organised the conference, not Devonera, and they had the upper hand. So that was his belief in July 1921. And I would say a reflection of this reality was that just prior to these negotiations, the British Cabinet in London was still considering what might seem like pretty extreme ideas, like simply executing all the Sinn Féin leaders. But the one figure in the British Cabinet who convinced everyone else there was no need for this, you can guess, was Arthur Balfour. Why? because he had his information from Ireland, which basically said that matters have already been sorted. There's nothing to worry about. So, why so? Well, the answer to this is possibly pretty obvious, but its uh, I'll mention it again. Because Sinn Féin failed to take control of the finances of, of government in Ireland, it had also essentially lost the struggle to take control over law and order. And this was also the defining feature of what is not too accurately been described as a truce at this time. Under its terms from the summer of 1921 onwards there was to be a dual policing arrangement in Ireland, operated by liaison officers between the RIC and the Irish volunteers. However, all the, all the financial resources of policing still remained in Dublin Castle's hands. Hence the key men who acted as liaison officers over the next 18 months, such as Emmet Dalton, uh, who was, we can almost say, the chief liaison officer in Ireland in general, and Owen O'Duffy, who was the liaison officer for Ulster, which actually technically made O'Duffy, for a time, co-director of policing in Northern Ireland with the Royal Irish consab- Ulster Constabulary. Consab- These two men, Dalton and O'Duffy, may have had a link of sorts to the dail Iron administration, but they had very little power behind them. Because unionists still control the purse strings, they could also still dictate the control. Or they could dictate the pace of change or reform. And I think perhaps the best illustration of this ongoing reality, which was the case through 1920 up to 22, was Arthur Griffith's statement in the Daw in February 1922, when he defended the idea, as he had done all along, that sovereignty rested primarily in Dál Érainn. But at the same time, he had to point out an unavoidable fact, which is that the annual policing budget for the country was costing, it is estimated, £4 million. But the maximum amount of financial resources that the doll had at its disposal was about £200,000. So, in that sense, it would be fair to say that if anyone wanted, say, to attack the doll at this time, well, Griffith and Company would have essentially been completely defenceless. They were effectively sitting ducks. They didn't have control... uh, for financial reasons, not least over law and order. So that didn't help Sinn Féin at any stage in winning the propaganda war I was talking about earlier. Am I doing okay for time? Yeah, yeah Six okay. Six minutes. Okay. Now Winston Churchill once repeatedly said that diplomacy is the art of telling someone to go to hell in such a way that they actually end up asking you for directions. And This is how some historians have interpreted the significance of the Anglo-Irish Treaty Agreement of 1922. Now, the relationship of sovereign unionists to that agreement was complex. Although they were parties to the peace agreement with De Valera in July 1921, they were not parties to the treaty itself that was signed in December 1921. And there was a degree of anxiety about this, and in particular, Milton was expected as a result to insist that the British government... Uh, we can still recognise the Soviet Unionists as the chief, their inherent right as organisers of the truce to be the th- chief intermediaries with Dáil at this time. So in other words, Soviet Unionists should never be bypassed, no matter what happened in 1922. And the British Cabinet largely went along with this, but that might be, say, less significant than the fact that I think Soviet Unionists at this time, still be militant. This was essentially the way they viewed the purpose of the provisional government that was now uh, led by Michael Collins. Legally, this body was, supposed, was a manifestation of the Sovereign Irish Parliament that had been originally envisioned by Middleton, but it ceased to exist in late May 1922. And immediately thereafter, uh, together with Jameson and, and Archbishop Bernard, Middleton issued a complaint to the British cabinet against Collins, claiming that he was biased against them. The British Cabinet's response was to keep control of all Irish revenue and report to Arthur Griffith that they were not prepared to hand over any powers or have the Free State established unless the Sovereign Unionist demands uh, were met. And I would say somewhat unfairly, one of these demands, as is shown by Middleton's communications with W.T. Cosgrave, was that the Dáil effectively surrendered its desire for a distinct Irish constitution, which they felt they were entitled to under the treaty agreement. Now this essentially placed Arthur Griffith in an impossible position, and that point wasn't lost to political cartoonists at the time. The Irish, Unionists had ju- excuse me. the Irish Unionist Alliance had judged privately in January 1922 that the fiscal autonomy to which a free state might now be legally entitled under the treaty could serve to break up the entire economic unity of the United Kingdom and so undo what was described in a typically loyalist fashion, the work of generations of statesmanship. And, again, in their mind, only loyalists, in effect, could be statesmen. They didn't trust these new Irish nationalist types. Now, Griffith's intention was a fiscal autonomy that resided with the Dáil, and a free state senate, to which sovereign units would be entitled to some representation, along with many other parties, who have no powers to counter this. However, the central fact that the Dáil had no money and the Ireland would continue to be burdened by heavy British debts, effectively guaranteed that these powers were largely illusionary at the time, and Sinn Féin's day, in a purely party political sense, was passing. Now, why do I say that? Well, I think, irrespective of the terms of the treaty agreement itself, if you look at Irish nationalist behaviour during 1922, it seems clear that they still felt that they had no real power, except as such what may be derived from party political success. And a significant illustration of this, I think, was the formation of a national panel or a coalition, essentially against unionist interests, and the subsequent blame game that came about when this panel uh, disintegrated. And in that sort of in that blame game, the only criteria of judgment applied by many commentators was the question of simply being seen being on the right side, or at least seen to be on the right side, which, to their minds, effectively meant not being on the unionist side. That's that was sort of a long-standing tradition in Irish party politics for many years, and its continuance uh, was reflected by political cartoons of the day, which I don't really have time to show, I think. But anyway, I'll just go quickly here. Like, that's a typical. This and I were afraid of all cartoons down the road a bit. But I'm not sure. I think it was 1931. But, I mean, people would have had this attitude, too, in 1922, the, all that matters is is not being on the unionist side. It's, it's kind of like the message that's behind a cartoon like that. Uh, and then here, this is a supposed endangered minority. Uh, we have these very wealthy businessmen who are supposed to be all unionists. And um, again, it's a question of the use of phrase defaming the natives. In other words, come on the gale is supposedly... Uh, defaming the natives just like the union is supposed to do therefore you can't trust them So, or you, it's not right to support them so these, these were yeah, I'm not a great fan of political cartoons but they do tell us something about the way people thought at the time right so I, I am moving towards the conclusion <laughs> let me explain briefly Middleton's attitude to the Irish Free State he was not actually interested in being the free, in the Free State Senate primarily because he objected to the Free State Constitution. and This a- reflected a particular aspect of his diplomatic thinking. To Middleton's mind, the entire Irish struggle of independence was actually similar to the Boer War, and he, des- he desired that the results would be as identical as possible. Old Boer War rebels like General and General Switz, they later served Britain loyally during the First World War. and Middleton des- desired or hoped that the uh, Irish Free State would act likewise in the future. This is precisely why those terms in the treaty, which De Valera effectively used later on uh, to guarantee neutrality, such as recognising Ireland's eventual right to military and naval autonomy, these were deemed highly objectionable by Middleton. Now, apart from the purely military aspects of this question, this also reflected the fact that Middleton still hoped, in 1922, to effectively isolate Ireland diplomatically as much as could possibly be done. Therefore, with Balfour's aid, he succeeded in um, not only going to America in 1922, but actually getting himself invited to the White House uh, by the American president, where he defended the idea that all the trouble that was going on in Ireland since 1919, in particular the trouble that's going on at that moment, the Civil War, this was all entirely Irish nationalist fault. So Middleton was able to make this argument in the White House before the American president, at a time when when no Irish nationalist could possibly hope to get admitted to this American government council. I think that was a very significant illustration of the way things still were in Ireland during 1922. The Sinn Féin policy or diplomatic hope had been to appeal essentially to the republics of America and France. But both states necessarily were adopting kind of a wait-and-see approach during 1922 and also didn't want to offend Britain by any of their actions. But I'd like to note just briefly what their attitudes towards Ireland were during 1922. The United States was inclined to take the view that the Free State Cabinet were effectively a group of Republican revolutionaries. They didn't know what to expect from them. The French, by contrast, were particularly impressed with de Valera, but they were very mystified by his decision not to attend at all. So that mind that was entirely self-defeating and counterproductive. Now, th- as many of you might know, Churchill actually demanded of Calsgrave in September 1922 that De Valera's party shouldn't be now admitted to the Dáil. Well, I can kind of think that was less significant to, than the fact that in effect De Valera obliged Churchill by deciding not to attend the Dáil. He could have done so. And this is a significance to the Southern Unionist question, I'd say, for one reason, because it effectively gave them, uh, Middleton and Jameson in particular, an opportunity to uh, pressurise Cosgrave into compromising on the question of the free state constitution, which they weren't too enthused about, to say the least. And they could, I would argue that they could possibly even have achieved that uh, in the winter of 1922 and thus prevented the free state from ever being established at all, were it not that they ultimately decided that this wasn't the best thing to do. I'd say there's two reasons for that. First, the fear that they could be exposed, in effect, as a, as a sort of covert anti-treaty party, and so be accused of reckoning the treaty altogether. And the second reason was the sense, which is like the main theme of my talk, that they believe that their interests had essentially already been guaranteed. And again, I think the main reason for that was financial. Middleton could count among his allies, Lord Ghaniwi, who was the British Chancellor in Ireland, and then was made Chairman of the Senate. And of course, Andrew Jameson also sat on that same body. But as had been Griffith's attention, they, actually, they had no... Legislative power in the Senate, in effect. This is a crucial difference between the treaty, as far as Griffith was concerned, and all the proposals that came previously, including those that had been championed by Middleton. However, the fact that the Dollars yet did not have any financial resources at its command and was also denied legitimacy by nearly half of Ireland's public representatives essentially meant that the situation that existed in July 1921 could be perpetuated. And I want to focus on that point again to, to conclude, because the logic, I would say, of the Southern Unionist political strategy, which hopefully I've been able to describe somewhat today, the logic all along was that so long as the legal and financial administration of Ireland remains sympathetic, the ultimate solution to the Irish political situation must continue to rest in Unionists' own hands. This is why party politics was essentially an irrelevance to Southern Unionist strategy, it was more a matter of high politics, or as they put, put it, safeguarding the future. It could well be argued that the doll had already been outmaneuvered by the time of Middleton's peace agreement in July 1921. One reason I would argue that is that it was deemed an essential condition of the truce, if not the treaty itself, that whatever conditions ex- that existed at that moment in time, when Sinn Féin still had no control over the financial resources of the c- country, the situation that existed at that time should be perpetuated. And I would say Unionists, in, in Southern Unionists at the time, used their financial power to intend to make that consensus an essential feature of Anglo-Irish relations, which now, of course, also included North-South relations, uh, make that an essential feature of Anglo-Irish relations henceforth. And this way, counter any imperfections, as they saw it, in the overall settlement of the Irish question that they would uh, have desired the most. As such, although Southern Unionists did not achieve a total diplomatic victory in their attempt to outmanoeuvre the Daw, mostly via their British Foreign Office contacts, their particular strategy was essentially sufficient to accomplish and maintain an effective counterbalance to certain Irish nationalist aspirations, be they diplomatic or financial. However or not this constituted a healthy balance in Irish political life, I think it's a subject matter for a different discussion, debate or talk. I say I hope I hope they, uh, that you that uh, you understood the theme of my talk. They were trying to outmaneuver the doll, but they did that, ineffectively, diplomatically, because they had, unlike I would say, Craig, they had a very sound perspective through Middleton on the development of the empire. So they knew how to that they could rely on Middleton to achieve what effectively was achieve, achieved through diplomacy okay okay <laughs>